Well, we are going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago in our study of 1 Thessalonians. And as you remember, we, we are now into chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, and we've somewhat slowed down our pace because here, beginning in chapter 4, Paul begins this very uh, intense section that'll take us almost all the way to the end of the letter, where he deals with the issues in the faith of the new converts in Thessalonica, the issues in their faith that were lacking. The testimony of Timothy and Timothy's report, and, and then he expresses this desire, Paul does, to want to go back to Thessalonica in some way to help supplement or to meet those issues that were lacking in the faith of the Thessalonians. And so that section actually in chapter 4 begins where Paul says, you know, I'm going to write about these things. I'm not going to wait until some future opportunity. I'm going to address them right now. And he begins in chapter 4 addressing the issues that were weak in the faith of the Thessalonians. And as we began that chapter, we began our study, we we looked at how Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 reminding the Thessalonians that the issues which were weak in their lives, the issues for which they needed additional instruction, about which they'd never heard teaching. And he begins in the opening verses of chapter 4, pointing to the fact that Paul and Silas and Timothy had already given them many commandments regarding these things. And in, and then in, in verse 3 of chapter 4, he then transitions to begin dealing with one of the most primary weaknesses, an area where the Thessalonians needed reminder, they needed, uh, they needed uh, admonition, they needed to be reminded of the things that Paul had already taught them. And really the, the key idea there is expressed in the first half of verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. And that statement serves really as the tape to the end of verse 8, and we're going to finish that chapter this morning. We're going to end in verse 8 this morning. But I want to remind you of what we've already covered. First of all, we've, we've looked at God's will declared there in the first half of verse 3, and then two weeks ago, we looked at how the Apostle Paul applied God's will to a particular area of life, to the area of sexual ethics. And just as much as in our day, so it was necessary in Paul's day as he wrote to the Thessalonians to address this very important issue, the issue of sexual ethics. And I mentioned two weeks ago that one of the major problems that we are facing today in the evangelical church that claims to, to operate, to believe, to live, is spreading, that is either minimizing the Bible's teaching about sexual ethics or is giving the impression that the Bible really only whispers about these things. The Bible, as many have started to say these days, the Bible speaks much more seriously about other issues, about equity, or even the environment. But issues related to sexual ethics, you know what? The Bible is quite silent 
This leaves church members with the impression that the Bible just doesn't give us the answers for today. The Bible just isn't detailed enough. And we've got to look to other things to understand this very, very important issue of life. And what is happening in the midst of all this is a capitulation to the culture. A capitulation either because of fear or it's a capitulation that is driven by a desire to be accepted and welcomed and respected by the culture and continue to have our place at the table, continue to have an influence at high levels in society. And if we're really going to teach on the Bible's teaching about sexual ethics, that will be gone. Indeed, I said it two weeks ago, that if you want to elicit the scorn, the hatred, and even the violence of society, just teach the Bible on sexual ethics. You know, if you're going to talk to people about why you shouldn't lie, why you should be honest on your tax returns, if you want to talk about the importance of, of um, respect and the problem of pride, the society will nod its head and agree with you or maybe disagree and in the end... the, the, the But there's one issue that in particular that elicits the ire of society and it is when we speak what the Bible does speak on sexual ethics. Several years ago, Carl Truman wrote these words, and I think they're very fitting for today. He wrote these almost 10 years ago, and they're just as much operative today. He said this, quote, You really do kid yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. He said that back in 2012, and I think we could say that that is actually quite true today. Now, what does the Bible, if you're going to be faithful to this teaching, why will it elicit such a hatred from our society. Well, let's look at this text in 1 Thessalonians 4. First of all, we're going to look at, as a review, the first several verses here, beginning in verse 3 to the middle of verse 6. Paul says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. We looked at this two weeks ago, or we got through most of this. I'm going to have to return to the final element there. But by way of review, let's remember this, that after stating God's will for the Thessalonians truth to the, to the realm of, of sexuality with three very important exhortations. So if we look at that text, beginning in the middle of verse 3 to the middle of verse 6, as I noted two weeks ago, each one of these exhortations begins with the word that. So it, it, it shows that Paul is, is defining, describing, and applying what is God's will. God's will is our sanctification that we, that we withdraw from the vanity of this world and be consecrated wholly to God. That's sanctification. It involves both mortification, the killing of sin, 
and vivification, the making alive of virtue. And Paul says, let me explain this in three ways. First of all, he said, as we looked at the points last week, first of all, you abstain from all sexual activity outside of marriage. That was from sexual immorality. He emphasized that we must avoid contact with what is called porneia, which is a broad term that touches on all aspects in a general way, all aspects of sexual activity outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. It would include same-sex sexual attraction and activity. It would include premarital sexual activity. It would include extramarital. It is the, the term there that encompasses everything that is unlawful as it pertains to sexual conduct. You must avoid it, Paul says. This is God's will applied to this area. Abstain from all sexual activity outside of marriage. Secondly, in verses 4 and 5, his emphasis here was to cultivate dignified sexual intimacy within marriage. And that was the focus of verses When he says this, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And he's addressing the men here, and we have to be careful about reading too much into this, but it appears that one of the areas that was lacking there in the Thessalonian church was particularly among the men. And so these next two commands are actually directed at the men, Paul elsewhere will deal with sexuality as it relates to women in other texts, but here he's, he's, he begins focusing on the men and this second exhortation that each man know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, as we studied two weeks ago, is a reference to the fact by looking at that terminology, and you can go back to the sermon and the notes that are online, is a reference to, to Paul's instruction to men that they know how to get married, and to conduct their marriage as well. To have and to hold. That verb to possess has the idea of Paul here in in these verses 4 and 5 is elevating the sanctity of marriage. And he's saying, look, men, you need to know how to have and to hold a wife. And that you do that not in domination, not in anything that would mark the lustful passion of the Gentiles, but it is something that you do in sanctification and in honor. And that word for honor refers to the fact that the husband must must honor and value his wife. Paul is teaching here a totally different understanding of marriage than would have been prevalent in the Gentile society. And then he gives this third exhortation. We didn't look at this last time, and so we're going to come back to this quickly because it is so important. It's in verse 6. We already said last time that the emphasis here is on this. God's will applied to us. We are to honor the sexual purity of other marriages. We are to honor the sanctity of the marriage relationship of others. Now, let's look at this now in detail because we never got to it two weeks ago. Notice what Paul says in the beginning of verse 6. He says this, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. This is the third of the three applications of God's will applied to the matter of sexual ethics. And again, as we we can see here in the flow, after Paul gives that general 
overarching exhortation in the beginning of verse 3, or in the middle of verse 3, he then gives an exhortation to the men about their own marriages and now turns to give them an exhortation about each other's marriages. Transgress, that no man transgress. This particular verb is found only here in the New Testament. Obviously, the, you know, the, the, de- the, the translation of it is pretty straightforward, but it is a rare term, and it, it refers to the stepping outside of assigned limits. The stepping outside of assigned limits. That no man step outside of the limits. That's what Paul is instructing here, and he goes on and defines it further, and he says this, that no man step outside the limits and defraud his brother in the matter. Now, the word for defraud there, we find elsewhere, especially in 2 Corinthians, it's often used in commercial contexts. Even our English translation suggests that. You're going to find text. But what the Apostle Paul does here is he takes this verb from the context of commerce and he applies it to marriage relationships, particularly relationships among different marriages. One commentator said this, the verb conveys the notion of using trickery or deception to take advantage of another person for one's own selfish gain. It involves trickery, deceit, cunningness, and it involves taking advantage of something for one's own personal benefit. Well, what is that in this context? Well, he adds this important nuance. He says, let no man transgress and defraud his brother. So by the use of this term, Paul is referring to the household of faith. The term brother is not a term for blood nation consistently and, and, and frequently. It refers to a member of the household of faith. It refers to one who stands in close spiritual relationship. We're actually going to look at this more when we get into verses 9 to 12 of chapter 4. Paul is going to talk more about brotherly love. But he refers to it here, and what's important to note is that when we talk about a family, when we talk about members of a family, even a spiritual family, there is the real presence of familiarity right? We see each other a lot. We begin to develop close relationships. That's what a family does. But what Paul is starting to point out here is that in the context of familiarity, there can be particular temptations. He's saying this, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. In the matter. So, you're, you're, you're forced to ask the question, what's the matter? What is the matter that Paul is talking about? Well, we read in the entire previous context that it is referring to sexual conduct. And, and more specifically, in the previous exhortation, referring to marriages. And so what Paul is doing here is he is explicitly, unambiguously, warning and prohibiting the concept of extramarital affairs. He is compelling the men in the congregation to be very deliberate, to to be very intentional in upholding the sanctity 
of other marriage covenants. This is not some very clear. Let no man transgress. Let him not overstep the boundary, the limitation, and deceive and trick his brother for his own selfish gain in the matter of sexual ethics. It is a prohibition of inappropriate relationships between couples outside of marriage. So let's think of some application that we can draw from this. And again, I want to look specifically to the men here, because as Paul does, that's what he's doing. And this is a particularly important issue for men as it is. First of all, this question, men, are you careful not to cross boundaries of thought, of speech, of conduct related to other women in the church? Are you careful in this stepping lines, limits? This is what Paul commands us. Do not cross these boundaries. Stated in another way, men, are you careful to ensure that familiarity with other women in the church will never lead to impure desire. That's where it always begins. We could look at James chapter 1, verse 14, right? Each one is tempted when they are carried away, when he is carried away by his own desire. That's where it begins. And so the question is, are you careful that the familiarity that you have with one another, and, and you're in the household of faith here. This isn't, the, the church is not just a men's club. It is, it is for men and women, and, and as Paul will teach, we are all co-heirs equal in Christ. That leads to this familiarity, and so men, are you careful to make you impure thoughts of those within the church. Let me ask it another way. Men, do you respect the sanctity of other marriages? Is this a priority for you? Do, do you recognize how important it is to make sure that you would never be any part of a relationship that would go awry? but rather do everything within your power to promote the exclusivity, the commitment, the covenants of other marriages. And I'll let you think through that. That that has all kinds of other implications and applications that you can draw from this. How are you as as a man in the church going to respect and honor and promote the sanctity of others? Be a single man and you can have a role in this. You must have a role in this by your present conduct. Now, with that said, we would say that, well, this leads to some pretty high standards, and it it, it raises the question immediately, how, how are we to respond to this? Let's talk about motivation. How are we to be motivated? Are we to be motivated in some way? And is there wrong motivations in this? It's a very important question, Motivations have consequences. Ideas have consequences. So if this is the standard, Paul has given some very clear commands. You could say this, God has given some law, or Paul has given some laws. Now how do we approach the concept of laws? Divine law. This is divine law, no question about it. So how are we motivated 
two responses before we look at the right response in motivation. Two inadequate responses. One inadequate response to this high standard of purity is to, is to think this way. And this was, I want to raise this because this was a big problem in the purity culture that, that was so associated with, with Joshua Harris and associated with his apostasy and all the criticism that came after uh, Joshua Harris wrote that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And, and, and it's, it, it, when, when he was professing to be a believer and a, a leader in the church, he wrote this, these materials. And, and, and there was this whole purity culture that really in the 1990s really became very, very popular. And now that's all being re-examined and critiqued, especially by secular society, as being just a, a whole bunch of legalism. And there is some merit to it, because with it prescribed that just you can't find in the Bible, but more than that, there were some wrong motivations associated with, with, with compelling people to obey. And one of those wrong motivations that was often held up as the key to to, to, to pursuing purity was that if I pursue purity, God is going to give me the most extraordinary marriage. That's how I need to be motivated to obey these things. If I just fulfill these laws, God is going to bless me with marital bliss. And then, and this was the problem with Joshua Harris, he tried to live by that and, and then it all fell apart. didn't happen. He blamed God. That's the approach of legalism, that I'm going to be motivated mostly by the carrot at the end of the stick, which is going to be this marital bliss. If I follow these laws, I'm going to be heaven on earth. It's not that simple. And if you're motivated by that, then what happens is when that doesn't materialize, you blame God. God didn't follow through. And that's often associated with legalistic approaches to the law. But there's another approach, which is the other opposite approach, which we could say is the approach of antinomianism. And this is very popular as well. This approach says, you know what? Yeah, these are God's laws, but you know what? You're going to fail anyway. So when we talk about motivation, how you should be motivated, well, just understand this. You're to be motivated by the fact that you're going to fail and you're going to have endless amounts of grace to cover all of that. That's what you need to focus on. That free grace movement. The idea that all that's really involved in sanctification is always remain to cover your mistakes. It, it, it kind of created this celebrity failureism, exalting the idea of failure. And, and, and so those who would teach this they would emphasize the idea, you know, we've got to get together and we've got to share all our failures and just revel in the fact that all these failures, as ugly as they are, wow, God's grace is even more than that. Now, for both of these, both legalism and antinomianism, there, there are elements of truth to that. There is grace. There is grace. And I want to make sure that as we continue in First Thessalonians, there's going to be points where this grace is going to come out, and we hold that out to those who have fallen, who have failed. There is grace. And certainly, even with the first of these inadequate responses, there, there are natural good consequences to obedience in this life. And if you are to motivate, and Paul understands this because in the very next section, he gives us the motivation we need to have 
as it relates to maintaining God's laws for sexual ethics. And it begins in the middle of verse 6. Let's look at this now. We've we've read from verse 3 to the middle of verse 6. Now look at what he does as he brings this paragraph to a conclusion. He says this, Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. And so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, Paul not only applies God's will of sanctification to matters of sexual ethics, he also details the truths to motivate us in these areas. And when we put the text, when we look at the text, I want you to notice something. In the same way that in the first half of this paragraph, Paul had three exhortations, each one pertaining to sexual ethics, each one beginning with the word that. But what he does in the second half of this paragraph, beginning in the middle of verse uh, 6, is that he gives three motivations. And notice, each of these motivations begins with an explanatory conjunction. Notice, he says, for example, in the middle of verse 6, because, because. So here is motivation number one. Then he says at the beginning of verse 7, for, another transitional term that that explains. And then he's going to do that right in the beginning of verse 8. So, a very significant one that is found there. We'll get to that in a few moments. Because, for, so. Here is Paul's motivation given related to sexual ethics. But there's something more to, to notice about this before we look at each one of these individually. It, it's fascinating how Paul, how, how Paul grounds this motivation in our triune God. Did you notice this? Notice, first of all, he begins by referring to the Lord. And whenever Paul uses that title, he's not referring to God the Father. He is referring to Jesus. So the first, the first person that is emphasized in this motivation is the Lord Jesus. And then in the second motivation, you see the name God that appears there. And that's a reference in Paul's writings to God the Father. And then in the last motivation, you have a reference to the Holy Spirit. And each one of these are very intentional. Paul grounds his explanation of motivation within the persons of the Trinity right now. And then we'll look through them one by one. God's will is to be motivated by the following. Number one, we are to obey because Jesus is the future avenger. Jesus is the future avenger. Verse 6b. Second, we are to obey because the Father saved us in holiness. Verse 7. And then we are to obey because the Spirit is our present help. And notice this. Not only do we have the, 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 the persons of the Trinity all being the, the, the substance or the foundation to our motivation... But also notice this, there's a very subtle change with each of these motivations in terms of timing. With respect to Jesus being the avenger, he points to the future. With respect to God the Father, he points to the past. And with respect to the Holy Spirit, he points to the preservation of this entire section in this Trinitarian motivation. Let's look at each one of these. Number one, we are to obey. We are to be motivated to obey. Because Jesus is 
the future avenger. Notice what the text says. We read this, because, so he's introducing the first of these three motivations. And this motivation is focused on Jesus. We're going to see that in a moment. It's focused on the future. And the focus of this is on warning. This first motivation is indeed a threat. And contrary to what many will say today, that threats and warnings don't play a part in Christian sanctification, that's not true. Paul doesn't hear himself. He includes a threat, and it's a very serious one. Let's look at it. He says, Jesus, or the Lord, is the avenger. Now that title, as I commonly is used by Paul to refer to the person of Jesus. Look back at chapter 4 in the beginning of verse 1 and 2. He's, that, that's the very previous antecedent instance where Paul has used the title Lord. And notice how he uses it. Chapter 4, just six verses earlier. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. And in verse 2, for you know what commandments we gave to you by the Lord Jesus. So Lord here is a direct reference to the person of Jesus. It's, it's Paul's favorite title for Jesus. He's the Lord. And that title, appropriately with this warning, that title emphasizes sovereignty. It emphasizes authority. He's the Lord. He has the authority, the position. And notice how he is described. He is the avenger. Again, quite a rare term that's used here in the New Testament. It, is, it, it does occur one other time in Romans 13. What does the term avenger mean? Well, the term is used to, to describe justice being done so as to rectify a wrong done to another. An avenger is one who brings justice to rectify a wrong done to another. One person defined it this way. It is the infliction of an appropriate penalty for a wrong done. And this is how Paul describes Jesus as it relates to these matters of sexual ethics. And it's particularly to be read in the, in the previous exhortation. Do not, he will inflict an appropriate penalty for the wrong that is done. And that's serious. What's fascinating to think of so far in this letter, think of this, Paul has described the devil in these ways. He's called the devil back in in chapter 2. He's called the devil the accuser who hinders. In chapter 3, verse 5, he calls the devil the tempter. But here, he calls Jesus the avenger. He's the avenger. Now, what does, where does this come from? Well, there's a text in the Old Testament that's very important on this. We don't have time to go through it. You can read it on your own. Psalm 94 talks about God being a God of vengeance. And in fact, what's fascinating to note is the way that Paul expresses his idea here in, in, in verse 6, similarity to the Greek translation of Psalm 94, 
the translation of the Hebrew, the Greek translation called the Septuagint, which was the dominant translation that Paul uses in his letters. So Paul is likely drawing from Psalm 94 as he describes Jesus as the avenger. And and that takes us back there. We have to think of that. How does the psalmist in Psalm 94 describe God? And notice what is written there in Psalm 94, verses 1 and 2. O Lord, Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. And then at the very end of the psalm, we read these words, But Yahweh has been my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge, he has brought back their wickedness upon them and will destroy them. The God of vengeance is Yahweh. Paul says, the God of vengeance is Jesus. If we look back at this text, Paul says, Jesus is the avenger in all these things. All these things don't just relate to actually the previous command of a man who might transgress and defraud his brother and commit an extramarital affair. Paul uses the plural here to indicate to us, you know what, this extends beyond this. This actually goes to all of the issues encompassed in Paul's exhortations on this issue of sexual ethics. And notice this as well. He says, just as we told you and solemnly warned you. You see, when we we see this, we, we realize that this wasn't new for other issues that were far more important, and he would just get to the issue of sexual ethics some other time. As we read in the book of Acts, Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, Paul was in Thessalonica a very short time. But when he comes to this point, he says, you know what? I have already solemnly warned you of these things. The word to solemnly warn refers to exhortation with authority in matters of extraordinary importance. In other words, Paul never whispered about these things. This was part of the training and instruction of new disciples right from the very start. And certainly, we can see why this was important to Paul. We could look at various texts of Jesus that refer also, that instruct us also on matters pertaining to sexual ethics. Just think of one of these, Mark. See how serious God takes this and why Jesus would be the avenger over these things. But from the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two, the male and the female, shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus also never whispered on these matters. And notice this, just coming back to this again, We often have this picture of Jesus meek and mild, that he's tame, that he's safe. But that wasn't Paul's understanding of Jesus. Jesus is the punisher. He is the... And that reality is to sink down deep into us and make us think very very hard and long 
about the temptations that come into our lives related to sexuality. This is no small matter. Number two, a second motivation. The first motivation was certainly one from a threat, one from a warning. Jesus is the avenger. You cross the line, he will bring retribution. You can count on it. But there's a second motivation here, and this is found in verse 7. Paul says this, For God has not called us in, or for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Again, this transitional word, this conjunction for, introduces the second of these motivations, and this motivation is going to focus on the Father. It's also going to focus on a moment in the past, whereas the first motive is one that calls upon us to remember. To remember. That's the focus here. Don't forget. Notice what Paul says. He says, you ha- he says, God has not called us. And that word, that verb for calling is a salvific term. It, it refers to that irresistible invitation that God gives at the moment of our conversions. You remember that. If you're in Christ, you know this. There was just that time when before that time, you had always resisted. You may have heard the preaching of the gospel many times before. It didn't, it didn't hit the target, didn't really impact you at all. Maybe it was interesting, but that was it. But then there was that moment, that moment in time when all of a sudden that gospel preaching was irresistible. That's the calling that Paul has here. It's referring to that irresistible invitation of the sinner to God through the proclamation of the gospel. It describes that intersects with our timeline. For example, we know this Romans 8 verse 30, right? Actually, verses 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that They would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, speaking of eternity past, he also called, speaking of how that eternal decree intersects with our timeline. So reference to the calling. Now, it's, it's that, that verbiage is used, the concept of calling is used for, for several reasons. It depends on the context, where the writer uses it, where Paul uses it in particular. In some cases, the reason why the verb calling is used to refer to that moment of conversion is because that calling and into something. So in 1 Thessalonians 2.12, just a few chapters earlier, we read this. You would walk worthy in a manner of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. So the reason why the verb calling is used in that salvific sense is that it is this irresistible invitation that draws you from the kingdom of darkness in a directional form into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Sometimes when the verb is used in this salvific sense, it also emphasizes purpose. You are not called for or unto something. And we see that here at the beginning of what follows. You were not called for the purpose of impurity. That was not why God irresistibly called you, that you would enjoy a life of impurity, that you'd find joy and contentment in that. That is not why God irresistibly drew you to himself. Instead, what we see here and through this not this, but that construction, 
is that God has not called for impurity, for the purpose of impurity, moral corruption, the antithesis of sanctification, but he's called us, and there's a slight difference now in the preposition. Notice this, very slight difference. It goes from for, for the purpose of, goes from that to in. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but there's a very subtle shift, and it's intentional. In the first half, he's saying God has not irresistibly drawn us so that we would live lives of impurity, that we would live lives in antithesis to his holiness. But in the second thing, when he describes describes sanctification, what is that a reference to? It's a reference to the reality that, that the moment when God made that effective call, that gospel preaching that became effectual. In that moment, there was an all-encompassing holiness that marked that. And you know that as well. You look back on your conversion and something happened. And what was so compelling about the gospel in that moment was that it was marked by holiness. It was otherworldly. It was not vain. It was not marked by the things of this world. You were drawn to God because of his otherliness. His transcendence, his sanctity. Paul says, remember, you were called in that context. In that moment of your lives, when you were drawn to Christ, that calling us, you were drawn because of the beauty of that holiness. Remember that. That is to, rem- that is to motivate you. When you face the temptation, go back to your conversion. Remember the beauty of the gospel. What made it so precious at that moment was not because it was worldly. What made the gospel so precious at that moment was because it was wholly other. And Paul says, remember that when the moment that the temptation comes, go back and reflect on that. And that'll help you through. There's a third motivation that Paul gives here. And this is really... Profound motivation found in verse 8. We are to obey because the Spirit is our present help. He begins with one of these conjunctions again. This is a very rare one. It only occurs in Hebrews 12 verse 1. It's a a comping of all things to a final conclusion. He's, he's, He's wrapping it up here, but he saves this very particular one to the end. And this motivation focuses on the person of the Spirit, and it focuses on the present moment. And if we were to summarize it, the first motivation was summarized by beware. The second motivation was summarized by remember, because it happened in the past. And then this third one, it could be summarized by the term appropriate. You might be saying, well, how do you get that? Well, let's look at it a little bit in detail here. Paul says, so... He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul again employs this, not this, but that construction. He's so very helpful in making things very crisp and concrete, black and white. He says, he who rejects this, the verb refers to believing that something or someone cannot be trusted. If you think that these commands cannot be trusted, that they will not result in what is good for you, if you think that these are off base, 
Paul says, you know what? If you believe that, you're not rejecting man, but the God who gives you his Holy Spirit. You're not rejecting man, but you're rejecting God. And what's amazing here is that Paul is, is, is drawing upon full divine authority for everything he has just said, particularly those exhortations. Those exhortations to abstain from sexual immorality, to have and to hold a wife, and to protect the sanctity of other marriages, that is not just human opinion. That comes from the very mouths. And he goes on, though. There's a second part of the verse that's important, and I want to look at this. He says, you're not rejecting man, but you're rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit. Now, look at that verb for just a moment. The verb gives. It's in the present tense. It refers to an ongoing activity. If you go to the first motivation in verse 6, Paul is referring to Jesus as the avenger. It automatically forces us to look to the future. If we look at the second motivation in verse 7, you saw that God called us. It's, It's referring to the past. But this one, the verb is expressed in the present tense to refer to an ongoing, continuous ministry. God is the one who gives, continually gives you. And what does he give? What what are we to be motivated by? He gives to us his through. It's a very awkwardly worded statement in the Greek for the sake of emphasis. It's not incorrect grammatically. It's, It's just an emphatic statement, and we would translate it as like this. This would be one way to translate it. That it is God who gives His Spirit, the Holy One. The Holy One. Now that designation, the Holy One, is the main concept, the main focus of everything that we have been studying all the way back to verse 3. This is God's will, your holiness. We translate it there as sanctification. The same cognate word, the same related word, there now comes at the very end of this text, and he specifically emphasizes the Spirit as the Spirit of sanctification. He is the Spirit who is responsible for promoting, it has as his ministry the, the role of cultivating this sanctification in believers' lives. And notice, Paul says, he has given the Spirit, his Spirit, the Holy One, to you. And again, in the English, it doesn't come through, but there's some very interesting wording here. It's not the normal way for just saying God has given the Spirit to you. Rather, literally, Paul says he, has, he is the one who gives his Spirit, the Holy One, into you. You don't find that elsewhere in Paul's writing. He uses a special preposition, or the preposition you're into. Normally, he would use other prepositions, but he uses the preposition into. Close. I think this is important. It's an important parallel that takes us back to the Old Testament, and this is important for understanding our motivation. So, understanding the Holy Spirit's role. You see, when we look at that preposition, God who gives his spirit into you, not just to you, but into you. When we look at the Greek of that, the original Greek, it has a very unique parallel 
in the Greek translation that Paul would have used of Ezekiel 37. Now, if you remember Ezekiel 37, all kids like this one. I remember this was a fascinating chapter, right? It's the chapter of the dry bones, the valley of vision. And Ezekiel is shown this valley of dry bones. No life, no flesh, nothing. And in that wonderful chapter of Ezekiel, he's nothing but death. God puts his spirit into them, into the dead bones. And sinews appear and they come alive. Look at just one text. Ezekiel 37 verse 14. Here the Lord says, I will put my spirit, now our Nasby says within, the Greek text, the Greek translation of this says into. I will put my spirit into you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. What is this a reference to? This is a reference to a precious Old Testament promise, what we call the New Covenant. And that New Covenant was a special promise because in all the, the, the promises or the, all the, the laws that had been given prior to that time, through the history of the Old Testament, Israel just never, as a nation, never obeyed as a whole nation. And the, then you have the New Covenant promise come along when God says, you know what? As a nation, I'm going to make this nation love me. And how will I do that? By something new. I'm going to put my spirit into them. And they will love and obey me. And they'll find it easy. That is a promise made to the nation of Israel. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying to the Gentile church in Thessalonica, you know what? God is going to do this in a unique way and is doing this already in a unique way to you, the Gentile church. Yes, the promise to the nation of Israel still stands. There is coming a day when the, the, the nation, the people of Israel, will have the Holy Spirit coming to that nation. But Paul says here to the Gentiles, you know what? God is already doing that for you. You get to be the foretasting of that reality. He is putting his spirit within you. And what does that mean then? That means here is the power to obey. What could never be obeyed by your own human strength, even if you respected the laws, even if you acknowledged the laws, even if you believed that they could come from God, what is so important here is that God gives the strength, the power to obey these laws. And it's in the Holy Spirit. One writer says this, this inspiration transformed their whole life. And it put to an end the pagan notion, the pagan plea that the believing man has no power to resist impure desires. Because here's the reality. You know, as you come across sexual temptation, the temptation to cross the bound, you say this, I don't have the power to resist. What you are de facto saying is that there's no spirit in me. You are de facto saying, I am not saved. I am not called I have not experienced that irresistible call. And Jesus is not my Lord and Savior. But if you say this, and when the moment the temptation comes, and first of all, you remember Jesus as an avenger, you remember how you were called by that irresistible drawing, and then you 
come to the present moment and you remember God continues to give me the very power and agent I need to obey, there it is. There's the motivation. I have the resource. I have the power. I have the spirit, my precious, and we'll wrap it up here quickly. I know time has has already fled, but one commentator said this, for Paul, the presence of the spirit was not simply God's gift as an option against sin, nor would he have understood the spirit as present, but ineffectively so. To the contrary, the dynamic that makes Paul's argument against sexual impurity possible is the experienced reality of the Spirit. Thus, for Paul, the Spirit is not only the key to becoming believers, if we go back to 1 verse 6, but it is the power for truly Christian behavior, and therefore he makes disobedience on their part a difficult thing to argue for. So we wrap this up, just a few things to think about, and we'll pray. Number one, beware of the consequences of disobedience in sexual matters. Jesus will bring retribution. Let threat holiness reflect upon that. That's motivation. Finally, appropriate the ever-present help rendered by the Spirit, whoever lives, to enable you in sanctification. You're not alone. You have the Spirit within you. He's given you the ability. Let's pray. Father, indeed, these are lofty standards. And we know our own hearts and how easy it is to wander. But we're thankful for this wonderful text that gives us the motivation we need every day to fight against the constant onslaught of temptation that comes from the world, from the devil, defenseless but have supplied us with the knowledge and the resources that we need. I pray, Father, for everyone here, that as we go into this new week, that we would grasp the significance of these things, these truths, and that this would be a new start on this path of sanctification, employing everything in the arsenal that you have given us, to kill sin, to fight for purity, and to reflect your holiness in our own lives to your glory and for the lifting up of the precious name of Jesus in our lives. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.